Hey, let's do this. Will you guys help me here at home court? Can we greet everyone that's watching live and online right now? We love you guys so much. Wherever you're watching from, at home, at the gym, whatever you do, we love you guys so much. And uh, God is as much with you where you're at right now as he is with us here right now. I, like normal, have uh, too much to say. And so if you guys will let me, I'm going to jump in really quick. I won't ever be too fast, though, to pray over the message. And, and I've told you guys this before, and you guys know this. I'm preaching the choir, but again, the choir's jacked up too, so let's talk. I never want to get up here and talk about a holy, unseen God that the, the fundamental of what we do is based on what? Faith, right? Being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you can't see, right? And so I don't take that lightly. So we're going to pray right now, and we're going to, again, invite the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. I do not have the, I'm as broken and flawed as you. My words are as imperfect uh, and flawed as yours. But when the Holy Spirit meets us in our imperfection and weakness, God's power is made perfect, the Bible said. And so we're gonna ask in Jesus' name that the Holy Spirit would be here and all of you, wherever you're at, in such a profoundly beautiful, sweet way and that he would do whatever he wants. You guys agree with me on that? We almost don't even even pray anymore because that kind of was my prayer, but let's pray. Let's make it official. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for breath and life. You said, let everything that has breath praise God. We praise you this morning that we are here. We praise you for our health, for our breath, for life. God, I thank you that we have the single greatest news on planet earth that we get to yet again uh, center around as a community. So God, would you now in your goodness and kindness, would you through the power of the Holy Spirit just blanket us with love and with truth and with kindness. And God, would you help us to walk out of these doors better than we walk in. It's in your name we pray. And everyone said, amen. amen. So uh, I'm going to do something that's really vulnerable for me and I don't like it, but I think it's for the greater good. Uh, I, I was a weird kid. I, I don't know how you were as a kid. Some of you may have been really popular, really cool. I was really weird as a kid. I had a lot of fun. I didn't know I was weird and ignorance is bliss. And so I had a great childhood, but I look back on it now and I was weird. And when I was 10 years old, uh, my aunt got married and my brother and I were in charge at the rehearsal of recording it. We, this was in the 80s. We had one of those old, some of you know what I'm talking about, those old RCA recorders where the tape was literally that big that you put in it. And, and so my brother was older, so he got to do that. And when the reception was over, my, my parents and my aunts and uncles, they all went to the kitchen area to start working on the reception uh, for the next day. And we stayed in the sanctuary. I grew up in the church all the time there, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I mean, we were there all the time. So I was very comfortable in the sanctuary. I knew what the sanctuary was about. And my brother was older and bigger and stronger. And so my job as a kid in my weirdness was to just make him laugh. I was basically his dancing monkey. What he told me to do is what I would do whether I wanted to or not. And he had this RCA recorder and he liked it. So he said, hey, just be stupid, be funny, make me laugh. And so I did something because I was in a sanctuary. And I had had modeled for me what you do in a sanctuary for 10 years now. And so I just started doing something that I didn't know I would end up doing for a living. I just started preaching to the camera and being pretty stupid in front of the camera. But the reason uh, I'm going to show you that sermon right now from the 80s, <laughs> even though it, I cringe as I watch it, is because the subject I, I just started preaching on without thinking about it is the subject we're gonna talk about today in this series, Simplicity. Watch this. Twilight Zone. 
from the deepest of the love, twilight zone. Please don't clap for that. <laughs> Sin, it's a terrible thing and nobody likes it. And if you do, then I don't like you. Sin. Now, here's what's interesting about that is I was just mimicking subjects I heard a lot about and even more importantly than hearing about sin a lot, the tone. Did you notice the tone? Did you notice how it was building? you notice how it was turned into, we called them a good old HFD sermon, Hellfire Damnation? Like, I, I don't know about your denomination or how you grew up in church or not, but in the 80s and the 90s as a kid, I heard a whole lot of talk about sin. And listen to me, that's not a bad thing. I know it can be a heavy subject, but, but here, here's what I know about sin. It is a fundamental aspect and part of the story of creation. It just is. It's what we're living in, right? And so we're going to do this as we're into week three of this Simplexity series. We're going to talk about the issue of sin because you cannot fully understand the beauty and the magnitude of the gospel if you do not understand the power of sin, and what Jesus did to deal with and give us victory over sin. And so, yes, like I did in that video, we are going to talk unapologetically about sin. Here's what I can promise you. My tone will be different. Because as I've gotten older, here's what I've learned about the truth of God's word. It's not just enough for believers to talk to each other and to the world about truth. Tone matters. It matters. Ask your kids sometime not about the truth you're giving them at home. Ask them about the tone sometime and what kind of effect that has on a growing and changing brain, right? It matters. Because see, hearing sin sermons like I mimicked in that video, it, it had an effect on me. It, because you know what I was really good at as I got older, junior high, high school? I got really good at sinning. 
Okay, some of you, you're much better humans than me. Great. But I was just naturally good at it. I just, the gravitational pull of my wayward little heart just wanted to sin. I was not, not so much a bad person as I was just intrigued by it. I was just like, you tell me, my youth pastor tell me not to do it. Ooh, okay. All right. I'm going to consider, right? Like, like that was just me. I, I had such a, a strong foundation about the issue of sin, but with all the wrong tone that, that my pastor's voice and my youth pastor's voice started becoming the voice of God. And parents, you got to understand that when our kids are young and their brains are still forming and their relationship with God is still very young and it's in its infantile stages, you are more the voice of God than God is the voice of God. This is the great high calling we have. And and, and so what I did was I went prodigal for so many years and almost destroyed my life, if not for the grace of God. And the reason that happened was because it wasn't the, my pastors, I loved them. They were amazing men and women of God. It wasn't the truth they were getting wrong. It was the tone. Sin, right? Like, you got to get down and fight it. And, and none of that's wrong. But I, I'm hoping to bring to this message this weekend the right tone. And so I have one ground rule, and it is this. It's from Paul, Romans 3. You all know this if you've been in church very long. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And how are we justified right now? How do we sit here with peace with God? Freely. We've been justified freely by what? The grace and redemption that not came from anything you've done, but by Jesus Christ. Paul said in Ephesians 2, it's not by works that we are saved or justified. It's by grace through our faith so that none of us can boast. We as gospel people, when we really know the gospel and we put everything and all of the weight of our life under the foundation of the gospel, we should be the least afraid to talk about sin. We should be the least intimidated to talk about the holiness of God. We should be the least scared of these kind of conversations where I think we started to get fear and we started to feel heavy during these talks. Uh, and I'm just processing with you guys from my own childhood right now. It was, was not the truth about sin. It was the tone around sin. So here's the deal. We are all here for one reason. The single most unifying factor at Plum Creek Church and every other Christian church on planet Earth this Sunday is this, if not for the grace of God, okay? We're, we're, we're other than that separated by so many differences from passions to giftings to skill sets to background to stories to testimonies to socioeconomic status to what kind of jobs we have to what kind of homes we live in to what kind of schools we did or didn't go to and everything in between. There's so many things that could disunify us, but the unifying factor in the church has to be this, if not for grace, because all of us in here have this in common. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we're not on our high horses in sermons like these. We're not going to spend the next few minutes thinking about the other people that needed to hear this message. You know what I'm going to challenge us to do? The same thing I did all week. Look at the person in the mirror. So I want to do this. I want to go in our Bibles to Genesis. We're going to go to chapter two and we're going to go to chapter three. I called this at my church for several years. We did several series on this. I called it Edenology. Obviously, the first three chapters take place to some degree in what's called the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden uh, was a literal garden. Of course, we believe that, but it was also a representation of God's original intent for humanity if sin wouldn't have been a part of the story. 
And that's why I, I always told my church for years, if you do not understand the first three chapters of Genesis, you will get to some degree the whole rest of this meta narrative, the whole rest of this story about Jesus and us, you will get it to some degree wrong. You have to get and know and immerse yourself in and study and over and over and over, let God through the Holy Spirit teach you about the first three chapters of Genesis. It's kind of like a rocket ship in Florida that's gonna go to the moon. If they're even an inch off in their engineering and all the mathematics they have to do to get their flight plan to the moon, if they're even an inch off, you go a hundred some thousand miles to get there, you're gonna miss the moon by a whole lot when you just started an inch off. And Genesis 1, 2, and 3, this is the launching pad to get the story right. You gotta know God's original intent and we gotta know how it went wrong. And so that's what, that's what we're gonna do. We're in this series called Simplexity and I just wanna, I, I did this with the gentleman for a minute at our men's conference, which I absolutely loved being at, but let me do this real quick. Okay, this was God, this is Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in my Bible right here. Can you all see that? at home. Okay, this was what the Bible was supposed to look like this weekend in 2020. We were supposed to have church for about one minute. Read, hey, everything's good. God's called everything good. Go work, go steward, go tend, make babies, have fun, enjoy the spoils of your labor. There will be uh, no sweat, there will be no blood, there will be no thorns and thistles that you have to work through. Eve, you're gonna have tons of babies and it won't cost you one ounce of pain. Uh, good day at church. Now let's go back and have an amazing time the rest of the day, amen. That was God's original intent. This is what God is restoring back to us. Revelations says there will be someday again, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. Doesn't this seem pretty simple? Can I also remind you, there was, you know how many commands God had? You know how many rules? Kids, you'll like this. You know how many rules for the family of God there was? One. Doesn't that seem pretty simple? Because we're in this series called Simplexity. And this is life, it's, it's, it's walking the tension between what's so simple about life and yet what becomes so complex about life. And we're all today sitting in this tension. When sin entered the picture in chapter three, this is now God's redemptive story. You see that at home? Does that look a little more complex? <laughs> does that look a little more problem? Does that look a little more dense and weighty? potentially exhausting if we're not careful. See, there was one command in the Garden of Eden, then when sin enters the picture and we bite the apple, now all of a sudden, a few generations later, guess what? There's now 613 holy commands. And it's not because God wanted to get more complex, it's because sin always exponentially makes life more difficult, which means God has to come in with more difficulty and parent us to keep us safe again and redeemed again, right? So now all of a sudden there's nomads in, 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 in the desert leaving Egypt, God's people Israel, and they have to live by 613 commands, which by Jesus' time, they had even added hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of amendments to those 613 to the point where they were tithing on their little bits of cumin in their spice drawers. It was getting so meticulous and legalistic and exhausting, and Jesus finally comes and says, we're gonna bring it back to just two, two commands again. But I want us to see in this series of complexity, nothing in life, Plum Creek Church, please hear me when I say this, nothing in life 
will make things more complex than sin. We don't talk about it to yell at each other. We don't talk about it to sound tough. We don't talk about it because God's the big cosmic killjoy in the sky. Young person, please listen to me. He is not out there to ruin your fun. He's out there to protect your fun. He's out there to enhance your fun. He's out there to bring holy boundaries around your fun so that your fun doesn't cut. See, here's what the Bible says about sin. Sin is fun for a season, just like holiness is. But it says in the end, sin leads to death. There's a time limit. There's this dangerous this season where, where sin actually it feels consequence free, and that's the deception in it. That's where it starts to, to, to get its claws into us. Listen to what Genesis chapter two says as we're doing some Edenology. This is chapter two. It says, the Lord God, he had just created everything and now he, gets, now he gets to Adam and it's him and Adam right now. The Lord God took Adam and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you ready for this? You are free. Everybody say free. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden. Sounds like a pretty good God. Sounds like a pretty free, gracious, kind God. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not, say must not, must not eat from any, uh, excuse me, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. We gotta stop here. I don't wanna go past this too fast. Think about what was just said in the same sentence. You are free and you must not. Sin hadn't entered the picture yet. The must not of God was not because of sin. It was to keep us from sin. You understand that? This was before the apple was eaten, that God was putting a holy boundary up for Adam and Eve. Do you realize we were never meant to steward good and evil? And we're horrible at it. We try, it's called religion. We try to tell everyone what's good, what's right, what's wrong, what's bad, what's this, what's that. Then we all fight over it and disunity comes, blah, 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 blah. And we're all arguing over what, what really is good and what really is bad. And we all have our opinions and thoughts and interpretations. Like that's, that's religion. Like that, that just breaks up relationship. We, we were never meant to get involved in this heavenly war between God and his angel adversary, Satan, the, the one-third angels that, that fell from, from grace, right? That's above our pay grade, But what do we have to do now? We have to spend a lot of time talking about the difference between good and evil and how to to get more towards the side of good and more away from the things of evil. We spend a lot of time having to referee between what's good and what's evil. And you know what it does to the human soul because it's above our pay grade and we were never meant to steward it? It exhausts the human soul. This is why Jesus in his redemptive plan was trying to get us back to simplicity, which is if you will just commit your whole heart and mind and soul and strength to a vibrant, thriving relationship with God, you will, in doing that, start to love your neighbor and your even enemy is your neighbor, according to the scriptures, another sermon for another day. You will love humanity more and more and more as much as you love yourself because when you let the God of the universe be number one in your heart, you will have a a proper view of you. And when you have a healthy view of you, you will start to treat humanity the way they deserve. And this is what God wants to get us back to. But I want us to see this. You cannot live free. You cannot live in your purpose and destiny the way God wants you to not only live it, but to enjoy it and not embrace must nots. 
That was pre-sin. That's what God does. And the more you breach God's must-nots, the more you compile sin upon sin upon sin upon sin. And you know what your life starts to get over time as that sin goes from fun to death? You know what you get? You get a really complex life. And we're in a series where we're talking about getting away from the complexity and getting back to the simplicity. And I just don't know how you could do that without talking about this issue of sin. So I want to do this for my last few minutes. You guys with me? You good? All right, I want to talk about two things. The anatomy of sin. We see it in the Edenology, the Garden of Eden, because I just believe, it's my thesis, that all of life's secrets can be found in the garden. So we're going to look at the anatomy of sin, the inception of sin. I think there are endless principles about how we identify sin, how we call it sin, and what we do with it. So let's start with the anatomy, and then we will go to the better part, the antidote. Genesis 3 Adam and Eve have been created at this point. The last verse in chapter two says, now Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. What a life, no shame. Naked and no, completely vulnerable amongst themselves and creation. Zero shame. That's God's original intent. That's what he's trying to bring back to us. Nothing will, will, will complicate a life more than a heart full of shame. Genesis chapter three, verse one. Here's where sin enters the picture. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And so he said to the woman, did God really? I'm going I'm to use some tone here, okay? Tone matters. The enemy uses tone to lie good. We should use the right tone to tell truth good. Here's his tone. Did God really say, come on, Eve, let's talk. You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman, Eve, said to the serpent, she gets it right here. She says, no, 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 serpent who's talking to me, which isn't weird at all. We may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. No, we can do that. You're, you're not telling the truth here. But God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. He's, God said you must not touch that or you will die. Are you ready for some more tone with the lie here? You will not certainly die. So, so here's rule number one with the anatomy of sin. You, you wanna fall into more and more sin and, and ultimately live much more complicated than life needs to be, make melodrama out of God's holiness. Downplay the holiness of God. I don't know about you, but I've done that so many times in my life. This is an easy talk for me because I have tasted the rotten fruit of making melodrama out of the holiness of God. I've bought into not only the lies of the enemy, but the tone of the enemy too many times. And we're getting warned about it right here. We're seeing it play out right here. And the enemy's MO is the identical in 2020 as it was in the garden. You know why? Because it still works on us humans. It still works. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like, talk about tempting, you will be like God knowing good from evil. Why wouldn't Adam and Eve want to be like God when surely the best thing they did every day was walk and talk with God in the garden of the cool of the day? And we know from the text that's what they do. God comes around 
And they walk and they talk and the weather's perfect and everything's perfect and everything's pain-free and there's no therapy session going on between them and God and no requests and no petitions and all the stuff we now have to do because of sin. There's no breach and distance between them. The be- Why wouldn't they want to be more like their hero? Why wouldn't they want to, who wouldn't want to have more of the best part of their day? And here's the lie the enemy says, you'll be more like him, knowing good from evil. And the last thing God wanted humans to have to know about was good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, let's stop there, number two, anatomy of sin. Sin will always look practical on the front end. You want to talk about deceptive? Sin will always look practical on the front end. Do you know how many people uh, at my church that I was at for almost 15 years, how many young adults that were getting married we had in our church that I sat with and told them not to move in together before they got married? And you know how many of them I, got, I made enemies of or they got really mad at me or some of my closer friends respectfully disagreed with me and did it anyways and we stayed friends and I stayed their pastor and I was on record going, listen, I know it seems practical, Let's talk about that for a minute. I'm just using this as one example so I can show you what I'm talking about here. She saw that it was good for food. What kind of human doesn't need to eat? Why wouldn't we as a future potential married couple not play house first? Share some bank accounts. Sleep together, right? We need to know if there's compatibility going on here. We need to know if we can live, we need to know if we have enough in common to make this work. If we're gonna do this for the rest of our lives and put rings on each other's fingers and say, till death do us part, shouldn't we give this a trial run? Doesn't that, when I just talk like that, doesn't that actually make kind of practical sense? But now you read the studies and they're not even Christian per se studies. Let's call them, even though I don't really love the word, let's call them secular studies. Secular studies, about seven out of about every 10 couples, almost 70% that live together first eventually get divorced. And if, if that's your story, listen, I'm not speaking that over you at all. Redemption is in this place. Life change is in this place. Break, we, we are here to break statistics by the power of God. So I'm not speaking, I'm just telling you the truth about statistics. But on the surface in, in modern enlightened times, it makes total sense to live together before you get married, right? And as a pastor, I'm just going, hey, hey, you're free to do all kinds of stuff, but don't do that. You must not do that. Like, don't do that. Just one example, but sin always looks practical on the front end. Goes on to say, it wasn't just good for food, it was what? This is huge, guys, pleasing to the eye. Sin's always pleasurable. We don't have to ignore that. We don't have to try and uh, act like sin isn't enticing on the front end. That's just disingenuous and intellectually dishonest. That's why Jesus said in the Gospels, if your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. I'm going to repeat that. These are the words of Jesus. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. Be careful. We have to be so careful what we put our eyes to because eyes are the windows to the soul and to the spirit, right? We see something. Our brain processes it and it shoots it straight down into our souls and our spirits, And we have to do something with what we see. Protect your eyes in this battle against sin. Protect your eyes. She saw that it was pleasing to the eye. So sin's practical. Sin's always pleasurable on the front end. And he says, it's also desirable for gaining wisdom. Right? He already told them, don't you want to be more like God, knowing good from evil? 
So sin's not just practical and pleasurable. It's always going to offer you some kind of sense of power. I'll call it pseudo power. Because any sin that you think is going to give you some new sense of enlightenment or power or wisdom will always fail you in the end and make life more complicated, therefore make you less powerful. True power. I'm talking about the power of the Holy Spirit alive and well on the inside of you. This is what sin loves to do. It loves to offer you a sense of pseudo power and enlightenment in, in, in exchange for the real power, which can only come from the source of the Holy Spirit living inside you. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives in you and lives in me. So, so when it was practical and pleasurable and powerful, it was too much, right? And so what did she do? She took some and she ate it. And here we go. She also gave some to her husband, who, by the way, gentlemen, before we get cocky, go, good job, Eve. Who got the command not to do it before Eve was even born? Adam. Where, where were you, Adam? What were you doing, Adam? Sitting there passively, letting your best friend do something that God told you would hurt you guys. This is the power of the enemy, though. We hurt each other. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And I, I don't have time for this, but I just wrote, sin loves buddies. Be careful who you surround yourself with. It's just so much easier to fall into the must not traps when you got company with you doing it. Gosh, I learned that the hard way over my life. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord of God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Remember that was supposed to be the best part of their day. Now all of a sudden because of sin, it's an indictment on their day. This is what sin does. It robs us of authentic joy in our relationship with God. It causes us to cower. It causes us to sit back. It causes us to do what they do and hide. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man, hey, Adam, where are you? And can I just remind us at church today, God never asks questions he needs the answer to. He knows everything perfectly ahead of time, all the time. He always just kindly asks questions that we need to answer, to sober up. Where are you? I heard you in the garden, Adam says, and I was afraid, which is what sin does. It breeds fear, and fear is the ultimate currency of the kingdom of hell. I was afraid because I was naked or ashamed, so I what? Hid. And, he, and God said, who, Adam, told you you were naked? And again, God doesn't need the answer to that question. God needs to sober them up. God needs to let them know who the author of this sin was, who the author of this now complex relationship situation they find themselves in. He needs them to know, hey, this wasn't me that's being put on you. This was the work of the adversary who I never wanted to introduce you to. I never wanted you to know them. I never wanted you to bite that tree. Have you eaten, God says, from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, and here's what sin does. Here's the most destructive thing about sin. It doesn't just affect you. It hurts the people that matter most to you because what does tons of fun Adam here do next? The woman you put here with me. Do you see what he just did? He blamed God and his wife in the same sentence. Why? Because we get crazy when we're afraid. 
Sin makes us immediately dysfunctional in a way that doesn't just cost us for the sin we committed, it compounds the sin onto other sins to try and cover up the old sins. You see what it does? Is, is things getting more complex now? By the minute, by every time Adam opens his mouth, things are going from simple to complex just like that. Why? Sin. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, and band, you guys can come on up. The Lord God said to the woman, let's try you now, Eve. What is this you've done? And she does a little better than Adam because I think women are just a little better than probably men. The older I uh, get and the longer I live with my wife, I think women are just smarter. Anyways, my, my opinion. What is this you've done, Eve? And the woman said, you know, she, she does, she plays this card. Devil made me do it. The serpent, he deceived me, and I ate. He, the devil made me eat, and, and God would say lovingly to Eve, no, the devil asked you to eat. Nobody made you eat. So don't play the victim here, because one of the most deadly end results and complicated results of sinning is to stay sane if you do not get right with that sin and honest about that sin, you will turn into a victim in this lifetime and nothing thwarts your destiny and your joy and your purpose like becoming a victim, blame shifting, finding what's wrong with everyone else and everything else and never looking in the good old fashioned mirror and going, what have I cost me? What can I bring to the cross today? What can I bring to the cross this week because God has answers. So, so here's the antidote, and I, I gotta go through this quick, but this is important. So, so stick with me for a few seconds, and then we're gonna sing our way through, through this. We're gonna worship our way through this. Two things God does as an antidote to sin on this side of eternity. This side of eternity. We know what he does on the eternal side, just full victory on the cross. We don't contribute to it. We just get invited into it. Most of you listening to me, you've already done that. You've already, you've already taken God's invitation into grace. So from an eternal perspective, let's just rest today and let's let, let's let that cause worship to flow out of us in a few seconds as we begin to sing to God, okay? But let's talk about on this side of the grave. Let's not talk about our eternal security. Let's talk about our temporal destiny because that's what sin right now, that's the only thing sin has left to try and destroy from you and take from you. And your temporal destiny matters because this is what we have today. This is our temporal destiny is our worship back to God, right? So here's what he does. You see in the, the text following, he curses Satan immediately. What have you done? Cursed are you above all livestock, goes on to say. He doesn't, you gotta hear this. He does not curse Adam and Eve. That's not part of his antidote. He could have. In, in just and holy fashion, he had all the right in the world to curse Adam and Eve like he did the enemy, but he does not curse Adam and Eve. Why? Cursed is every man, Colossians 3.13, cursed is every man who hangeth on a tree. Jesus would come and take the curse for us. Why? God just loves you. <laughs> That's how special you are to God. That's how much God, Jesus, Holy Spirit just love you. There's no curse on Adam and Eve, but here's what you gotta understand about sin on this side of eternity. You know what God does give Adam and Eve? Consequence. Temporal consequence. And it might feel like indictment to them, and it probably throughout your life has felt like indictment to you. It's grace. It's grace. 
Galatians 5 says a man reaps what he sows. The man that sows to his sinful nature reaps death. The man who sows to his spirit reaps life. Consequences are a gift from God because they're an accountability partner. He doesn't just give them consequences though, he clothes them. That's that's the part we romanticize more and we probably should. But can I tell you that God's consequence for our sin is as gracious to our life's destiny as his clothing of our sin is? Goes on to say this, Adam named his wife Eve. This was after he hands out consequences. Okay, he curses Satan. He says, Adam, you were designed to work, to create, to subdue, to get those hands dirty, to enjoy it. And now you're still going to do that, but it's going to come through some thorns and some thistles and through the sweat of your brow. There's going to be some problems at work, no matter how much you love your job. This could be problematic because sin's involved and humans are involved. And the earth is groaning right now in some pains because it needs to be redeemed too. And so when you work the earth and all that the earth was supposed to perfectly do, it's not going to do it perfectly anymore. It's going to create some problems for humanity. But you're still Adam and you're still going to go to work and you're still going to have a purpose, and you're still going to have a destiny, and you're going to still get these glimpses of what it's going to be eventually when Christ comes again. You're still going to get these glimpses of joy from doing that, so your identity's intact. Adam named his wife, listen to this, Eve. Why? Because she would become the mother of all living. This was Eve's destiny. This was Eve's identity. Notice God, after the consequences, doesn't take away her identity, but what's her identity come with now? Some consequence. Eve and ladies, I, I hate always talking about this because I, I, I don't know what it's like to be you and I feel like it's not my place, but I'm just telling you what Genesis says. It's gonna hurt when you have babies and your desire is gonna be for your husband and your husband's gonna be really broken and flawed, so that's gonna be real problematic. It wasn't supposed to be that way. But, but, but the thing that's gonna be a, a huge part of your identity is gonna be really painful and problematic for a multitude of, uh, of reasons and that's another sermon for another day. So the Lord God did this, here's the clothing. He made garments, after he gives them consequences, he made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them and the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, so he must not be allowed. Do you hear the consequence? This is so loving. It sounds like such an indictment though. Must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished consequence, him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. God simultaneously clothes their shame while graciously executing consequences and both are equal agents of redemption. So let me just give you a few thoughts as we wrap up about clothing versus consequence. Put that first thought up on the board. Clothing and consequences, they go hand in hand. Next thought, consequence isn't punishment, it's preparation for a redeemed life. Next thought. Consequence is is as vital to redemption as clothing. Next thought. Consequence, listen to this, without clothing would bring shame. If God just gave consequences but didn't clothe it, we would walk around in a perpetual state of what? As belief, shame, which would just perpetuate more sin. Consequence without clothing brings shame, but listen to this. Clothing without consequence brings idolatry. It creates in us humans a license to just go and be more immoral. What kind of father would, would, would clothe you but then not give you, con- because the ultimate accountability partner 
to, to the must-nots is consequence. You taste some of the consequence, and next time it's a lot harder to go, I don't want to fall back into that because look what it cost me. Look what it cost my family. Look what it cost my relationships. Look what it cost this or that. What else? Do we, do, do we have any more of my notes there? If we do put a consequences, oh, there it is. I'm ahead of it. It's an accountability partner to the soul. Consequences. I call consequences from God the helper. Clothing is medicine to the soul. I call that the healer. That's how God deals with our sin. And the reason I wanted to talk about consequence as much as clothing today is because we don't talk about that enough for whatever reason, I don't think. And then we do a disservice because then when we're sitting in some of the fruit and consequence of our actions, we tend to hide and pull away from God or think God's mad at us or we play the woe is me or the oh, God, I'll talk to you in a couple weeks when you're not quite so mad about what I just did last weekend, right? And what God's saying is no, the greatest thing you can do to attack this sin and the consequences of this sin is boldly run to the throne of grace to receive mercy in your time of need. Jesus paid way too high of a price, Plum Creek, for us to do anything other than sprint to the cross on the back end of our mistakes because eternally God has paid for them. 2,000 years ago, God already knew on the cross your every sin and mistake, and guess what? He still went to the cross for you. We should be the least scared to be the most honest about the brokenness that we walk in. The more you can be honest and the faster you can be honest and sprint to the throne of grace. To me, that's a spiritually mature person, a person that just keeps sprinting and sprinting and sprinting because every time you go to that throne of grace, there is a new degree of holy accountability and awe towards God. We call it the the healthy fear of God. There's a holy accountability and fear when you keep sprinting to that throne of grace more and more and more, and you taste more of his true grace, the more you truly taste God's grace, I believe this, I've lived this, the less you want to offend it and take advantage of it. You understand that? And that's when, that's when life starts getting simple again. Not because life's easy, not because we don't have uh, responsibilities and, and all kinds of adulting to do. It gets simple because we've freed up so much heart margin. Understand that? I think I've more than made my point and I talk too long and I need to shut up because they're really good at what they do and we really, I think, need to sing our way and worship our way through this. You guys with me? Would everyone stand in at home? Would you guys, however you do that at home, would you join in with us? I just wanna do this. I just wanna ask you guys in the last few minutes we have as we, we sing a couple songs together in worship, I wanna ask us to be the single most authentic and honest people group in all of the state of Colorado right now. Because the gospel of grace, the kindness of God is what should be leading us. I hope you heard that in my tone today. I'm not mad at all. I feel great today. I don't feel some righteous anger towards all of us Plum Creek sinners. I love us Plum Creek people. I love us so much we talk about sin. Why? Because we get to approach his throne right now. We get to receive grace and mercy in our time of need. We get to do it, the Bible says, confidently. Why? Because we're loved. God's not afraid of your sin. He just wants it gone because he wants to bring redemption back. He wants simplicity back. He wants more and more of his original intent to come back into your life, even on this side of the grave. He says the only pathway towards that is repentance. It's coming to God, confess your sins, and he is faithful and just to cleanse you and purify you of all unrighteousness. So with that being known and that being said, let's pray and let's worship. Jesus, thank you for your word. 
Thank you that you have chosen in your infinite goodness and wisdom to not only clothe us of our shame from our sin, but to let us sit in some temporal consequence to keep us from doing it more. What a gift. But God, it's hard for us humans to sit in consequence without thinking it's punishment. Let us see today before we walk out of these doors, it's not punishment, it's, it's discipline. And God disciplines those he loves. Holy Spirit, meet us in a powerful way as we worship through this. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen, let's worship.